What an extraordinary turn of events we had witnessed over the past few days. After an inquest in which a verdict was found of murder by persons unknown, mounting evidence against the CAD Alfred Inglethorpe and the presence of Inspector Jap of Scotland Yard, I had been convinced that Poirot would finally admit that Inglethorpe was the clear suspect. To my amazement, Poirot not only continued to defend him, but provided him with an airtight alibi. Alfred Inglethorpe had not done it? Then who had? After Poirot made his shocking announcement, I was not the only one left at sea. My word, you're the goods and no mistake, Mr. Poirot. These witnesses of yours are all right, I assume? Voila! I have prepared a list of them. Names and addresses. You must see them, of course. But you will find it all right. Oh, I'm sure of that. Many thanks, monsieur. But if you'll excuse me, sir, why couldn't you say all this at the inquest? I will tell you why. There was a certain rumour, a most malicious and utterly untrue one. No smoke without fire, what I always say. No smoke without fire. Evie? <clears throat> and Mr. Inglethorpe was anxious to have no scandal revived just at present. Am I right? Uh, quite right. With my poor Emily not yet buried, can you wonder I was anxious that no more lying rumours should be started? Between you and me, sir, I'd sooner have any amount of rumours and be arrested for murder. And I venture to think your poor lady would have felt the same. And if it hadn't been for Mr. Poirot here, arresting you would have been as sure as eggs is eggs. I was foolish, no doubt. But you do not know, Inspector, how I have been persecuted and maligned. Now... Mr. Cavendish, I should like to see the ladies' bedroom, please. And after that, I'll have a little chat with the servants. Oh, certainly, Inspector. Allow me. Now, don't you bother about anything. Mr. Poirot here will show me the way. As everyone made their exit from the room, Poirot made a sign for me to follow him upstairs, then caught me by my arm, drawing me aside. Quick, go to the other wing. Stand there, just this side of the base door. Do not move till I come. I shall rejoin the inspector. Do not move. I followed his instructions, taking up my position by the base door and wondering what on earth lay behind the request. Why was I to stand in this particular spot on guard? I looked thoughtfully down the corridor in front of me. An idea struck me. With the exception of Cynthia Murdoch's, everyone's room was in this left wing. Had that anything to do with it? Was I to report who came or went? I stood faithfully at my post. The minutes passed. Nobody came. Nothing happened. It must have been quite 20 minutes before Poirot rejoined me. You have not stirred? No. I've stuck here like a rock. Nothing's happened. Ah. <sighs> You've seen nothing at all? No. But you have probably heard something? A big bump? Eh, mon ami? No. Is it possible? Ah, but I am vexed with myself. I am not usually clumsy. 
I made but a slight gesture with the left hand and over went the table by the bed. Oh, never mind, old chap. What does it matter? Your triumph downstairs excited you. I can tell you that that was a surprise to us all. There must be more to this affair of Inglethorpe's with Mrs. Rakes than we thought to make him hold his tongue so persistently. What are you going to do now? Where is that Scotland Yard fellow? Gone down to interview the servants. I show them all our exhibits. I am disappointed in Jap. He has no method. Poirot, I must ask you, how were you so sure of Alfred Inglethorpe's innocence when there was so much evidence against him that was so conclusive? Yes, too conclusive. Yes, yes, too conclusive. Real evidence is usually vague and unsatisfactory. It has to be examined, sifted. But here the whole thing is cut and dried. No, my friend, this evidence had been very cleverly manufactured, so cleverly that it had defeated its own ends. Well, how do you make that out? Because so long as the evidence against him was vague and intangible, it was very hard to disprove. But in his anxiety, the criminal has drawn the net so closely that one cut will set Inglethorpe free. Let us look at the matter like this. Here is a man, let us say, who sets out to poison his wife. He has lived by his wits, as the saying goes. He is not altogether a fool. Well, how does he set about it? He goes boldly to the village chemist and purchases strychnine under his own name with a trumped-up story about a dog which is bound to be proved absurd. He does not employ the poison that night. No, he waits until he has had a violent quarrel with her, of which the whole household is cognizant, and which naturally directs their suspicions upon him. He prepares no defense, no shadow of an alibi, yet he knows the chemist's assistant must necessarily come forward with the facts. Ah, do not ask me to believe that any man could be so idiotic. Only a lunatic who wished to commit suicide by causing himself to be hanged would act so. Still, I, I do not see how it... Neither do I see. I tell you, mon ami, it puzzles me. Me, Hercule Perrault. But if he has this alibi, how do you explain that he was seen buying the strychnine? Very simply. He did not see him buy it. But Mace recognized him. Pardon. He saw a man with a black beard like Mr. Inglethorpe's and wearing glasses like Mr. Inglethorpe and dressed in Mr. Inglethorpe's rather noticeable clothes. He could not recognize a man whom he had probably only seen in the distance since, you remember, he himself had only been in the village a fortnight. And Mrs. Inglethorpe dealt principally with Coots in Tadminster. Then you think... Mon ami... Do you remember the two points I laid stress upon? Leave the first one for the moment. What was the second? The important fact that Alfred Inglethorpe wears peculiar clothes, has a black beard, and uses glasses? Exactly. Now, suppose anyone wished to pass himself off as John or Lawrence Cavendish. 
Would it be easy? No. Uh, of course, an actor. And why would it not be easy? I will tell you, my friend, because they are both clean-shaven men. To make up successfully as one of these two in broad daylight, it would need an actor of genius and a certain initial facial resemblance. But in the case of Alfred Inglethorpe, all that has changed. His clothes, his beard, the glasses which hide his eyes, those are the salient points about his personal appearance. Now, what is the first instinct of the criminal? To divert suspicion from himself, is it not so? And how can he best do that? By throwing it on someone else. In this instance, there was a man ready to his hand. Everybody was predisposed to believe in Mr. Inglethorpe's guilt. It was a foregone conclusion that he would be suspected, but to make it a sure thing, there must be tangible proof, such as the actual buying of the poison. And that, with a man of a peculiar appearance of Mr. Inglethorpe, was not difficult. Remember, this young mace had never actually spoken to Mr. Inglethorpe. How should he doubt that the man in his clothes, with his beard and his glasses, was not Alfred Inglethorpe? And all he has to do was say where he was on Monday evening. Tell me. You see now that he must not be arrested? But look here, Poirot. I can't imagine anyone else in the household being involved. No? Well, come, my friend. Apart from Mr. Inglethorpe, how did the evidence at the inquest strike you? Pretty much what I expected. Did nothing strike you as peculiar about it? In what way? Well, Mr. Lawrence Cavendish's evidence, for instance? Oh, Lawrence. No, I don't think so. He's always a nervous chap. His suggestion that his mother might have been poisoned accidentally by means of the tonic she was taking, that did not strike you as strange, huh? No, I can't say it did. The doctors ridiculed it, of course, but it was quite a natural suggestion for a layman to make. But Monsieur Lawrence is not a layman. You told me yourself that he had started by studying medicine and that he had taken his degree. Well, yes, that's true. I never thought of that. It is odd now that you mention it. From the first, his behavior has been peculiar. Of all the household, he alone would be likely to recognize the symptoms of strychnine poisoning, and yet we find him the only member of the family to have uphold strenuously the theory of death from natural causes. <laughs> if it had been Monsieur John, I could have understood it. He has no technical knowledge and is by nature unimaginative. But Monsieur Lawrence, no. And now today he puts forward a suggestion that he himself must have known was ridiculous. There is food for thought in this, mon ami. It's very confusing. Then there is Mrs. Cavendish. That's another who is not telling all she knows. What do you make of her attitude? Frankly, I don't know what to make of it. It seems inconceivable that she should be shielding Alfred Inglethorpe, yet that is what it looks like. Yes, it is queer. One thing is certain. She overheard a good deal more of that private conversation than she was willing to admit. 
And yet she is the last person one would accuse of stooping to eavesdrop. Exactly. One thing her evidence has shown me, I made a mistake. Dorcas was right. The quarrel did take place early in the afternoon, about four o'clock, as she said. Yes, a good deal that was peculiar came out today. Dr. Bowerstein. <laughs> now, what was he doing up and dressed at the hour in the morning? It is astonishing to me that no one commented on the fact. Oh, he's always turning up like a bad penny. He has insomnia, I believe. <laughs> Which is a very good or a very bad explanation. It covers everything and explains nothing. I shall keep my eye on our clever Dr. Bowerstein. <laughs> Any more faults to find with the evidence? <laughs> Mon ami, when you find that people are not telling you the truth, look out. Now, unless I am much mistaken, at the inquest today, only one, at most two, persons were speaking the truth without reservation or subterfuge. Oh, come now, Poirot. I won't cite Lawrence or Mrs. Cavendish, but there's John and Miss Howard. Surely they were speaking the truth. Both of them, my friend? <laughs> one, I grant you. But both? Do you really think so? Miss Howard's always seemed to me so essentially honest, almost uncomfortably so. Miss Murdoch, too. There's nothing untruthful about her. No. But it was strange that she never heard a sound, sleeping next door. Whereas Mrs. Cavendish, in the other wing of the building, distinctly heard the table fall. Well, she's young, and she sleeps soundly. Oh, yes, indeed. She must be a famous sleeper, that one. I didn't like the edge in Poirot's tone. I crossed the landing to look out the window, catching a glimpse of a familiar figure on the lawn. Hello, here's Dr. Bowerstein. I believe you're right about that man, Poirot. I don't like him. He is clever. Oh, clever as the devil. <laughs> what amuses you, mon ami? Oh, I was just remembering how he turned up here on Tuesday evening. You look like a regular scarecrow. Plastered with mud from head to foot. You saw him then? Oh, yes, of course. Uh, he, of course he didn't want to come in. It was just after dinner, but Mr. Inglethorpe insisted. I had clean forgotten until just now. What? Dr. Bowerstein here on Tuesday evening? Here? A and you never told me? Why did you not tell me? Why? Why? My dear Poirot, it, it completely slipped my mind, as I said. Besides, I never thought it would interest you. I didn't know it was of any importance. Importance? It is of the first importance. So Dr. Bowerstein was here on Tuesday night, the night of the murder. Hastings, do you not see? That alters everything, everything. Yes, yes, that, that alters everything, everything. Allons, we must act at once. Where is Mr. Cavendish? We must find him immediately. I need to go to Sweet, to Tadminster. Now, Poirot, whatever for? I need to go to the chemist and test the sample of the cocoa. But, but Dr. Bowerstein had it tested. Of this I am aware. This proceeding of Poirot's, in respect of the cocoa, puzzled me intensely. I could see neither rhyme nor reason in it. However, my confidence in him which at one time had rather waned, 
was fully restored since his belief in Alfred Inglethorpe's innocence had been so triumphantly vindicated. The funeral of Mrs. Inglethorpe took place the following day, and on Monday, as I came down to a late breakfast, John drew me aside and informed me that Mr. Inglethorpe was leaving that morning to take up his quarters at the Stylite's Arms until he should have completed his plans. And really, it's a great relief to think he's going. He was bad enough before, when we thought he'd done it, but I'm hanged if it isn't worse now, when we all feel guilty for having been so down on the fellow. The fact is, we've treated him abominably. Of course, things did look black against him. I don't see how anyone could blame us for jumping to the conclusions we did. Still, there it is. We were in the wrong. And now there's a beastly feeling that one ought to make amends, which is difficult when one doesn't like the fellow a bit better than one did before. It whole thing's damned awkward. And I'm thankful he's had the tact to take himself off. It's a good thing Styles wasn't the maters to leave to him. Couldn't bear to think of the fellow lording it here. He's welcome to her money. You'll be able to keep up the place all right? Oh, yes. There are the death duties, of course, but half my father's money goes with the place, and Lawrence will stay with us for the present, so there is his share as well. We shall be pinched at first, of course, because, as I once told you, I'm in a bit of a hole financially myself. Still, the Johnnies will wait now. Come, it's time for breakfast. You know, Hastings, I'm just now starting to feel hopeful we can start to put this nonsense behind us. I hoped John was right. We certainly enjoyed our most genial breakfast in quite some time. And, despite the papers still being abuzz with the murder, and Scotland Yard in and out constantly, I could also glimpse some sense of normalcy returning. But there was still a nagging doubt at the back of my mind that something, or someone, was amiss. It was then that the loyal Dorcas approached me. Mr. Hastings, sir, might I have a word? Certainly. What is it, Dorcas? Well, it's just this, sir. Um, you'll be seeing the Belgian gentleman today, perhaps? Well, sir, you know how he asked me so particular if the mistress or anyone else had a green dress? Yes, uh, yes. Have you found one? No, not that, sir. But since then, I've remembered what the young gentlemen call the dressing up box. It's up in the front attic, sir. A great chest full of old clothes and fancy dresses and whatnot. And it came to me sunlight that there might be a green dress amongst them. So if you'd tell the Belgian gentleman... I will tell him, Dorcas. Thank you very much, sir. A very nice gentleman he is, sir. In quite a different class from that detective from London that goes prying about and asking questions. I don't hold with foreigners as a rule. But from what the newspapers say, I make out as how these brave Belgies isn't the ordinary run of foreigners and... Certainly, he's a most polite-spoken gentleman. <clears throat> Pardon. I hope I am not interrupting. Poirot, how fortuitous. Uh, Dorcas and I were just talking about you, and I was about to walk down to see you and... Ah, well, here I am, mon ami, in the flesh. Dorcas has discovered something in the attic that she thinks will interest you. Ah, fantastic. Lead on, Dorcas. Very well, sir. Dorcas led us up to the attic, and Poirot immediately began sifting through its contents. You see, there are several green garments in there, sir. I, I do, I, I do indeed. Mais voilà! 
A black beard? It looks brand new. Uh, Dorcas, this is indeed a fine collection. Uh, may I ask how often it is used? Well, sir, not very often nowadays. Though from time to time we do have what the young gentlemen call a dress-up night. And very funny it is sometimes, sir. <laughs> Mr. Lawrence, he's wonderful. Most comic. I shall never forget the night he came down as... The Shah of Persia, I think he called it. A sort of Eastern king it was. He had the big paper knife in his hand and... Did Mr. Lawrence wear that fine black beard in the chest upstairs when he was the Shah of Persia? He did have a beard, sir. And, well, I know it, for he borrowed two skeins of my black wool to make it with. Then I'm sure it looked wonderfully natural at a distance. I didn't know as there was a beard up there at all. It must have been got quite lately, I think. There was a red wig, I know, but nothing else in the way of hair. Burnt corks they use mostly, though it is messy getting it off again. But it was not that one, you do not think? Oh, certainly not, sir. Thank you, Dorcas. You've been most helpful. Thank you, sir. Do you believe that is the beard? And did you see how it's been trimmed? Yes, to both counts, my friend. I did. Now, now let us depart. I need an ally, Hastings, in this house. Yes, an ally. Oh, but surely, Poirot, I am that for you. A an ally, I mean. Oh, my friend, you have been most helpful to me. I cannot thank you enough. Well, why, thank you, Poirot. Thank you. I have a small mission for you, my friend. Name it. The next time you see Mr. Lawrence, I want you to say the following. Find the extra coffee cup, and you can rest in peace. Find the... What on earth does that mean? Hello? Anyone home? I could use some help down here. Ah, uh -huh. the faithful Miss Howard. She is just the ally I seek. Come, Hastings, we must accost her. Well, Monsieur Poirot, what is it? Out with it. I'm busy. Do you remember, mademoiselle, that I once asked you to help me? Yes, I do. And I told you I'd help you with pleasure to hang Alfred Inglethorpe. Ah. <laughs> Miss Howard, I will ask you one question. I beg of you to reply to it truthfully. Never tell lies. It is this. Do you still believe that Mrs. Inglethorpe was poisoned by her husband? <laughs> what do you mean? You needn't think your pretty explanations influence me in the slightest. I'll admit that. It wasn't he who bought strychnine at the chemist's shop. Well, what of it? I dare say he soaked flypaper, as I told you at the beginning. That is arsenic, not strychnine. What does that matter? Arsenic would put poor Emily out of the way just as well as strychnine. If I'm convinced he did it, it doesn't matter a jot to me how he did it. Exactly. If you are convinced he did it, I will put my question in another form. Did you ever in your heart of hearts believe that Mrs. Inglethorpe was poisoned by her husband? Oh, good heavens! Haven't I always told you the man is a villain? Haven't I always told you he would murder her in her bed? Haven't I always hated him like poison? Exactly. That bears out my little idea entirely. What little idea? 
Miss Howard, do you remember a conversation that took place on the day of my friend's arrival here? He repeated it to me, and there is a sentence of yours that has impressed me very much. Do you remember affirming that if a crime had been committed and anyone you loved had been murdered, you felt certain that you would know by instinct who the criminal was, even if you were quite unable to prove it? Yes, I remember saying that. I believe it too. <laughs> I suppose you think it nonsense. Not at all. And yet you will pay no attention to my instinct against Alfred Inglethorpe. No, because your instinct is not against Mr. Inglethorpe. What? No. You wish to believe he committed the crime. You believe him capable of committing it. But your instinct tells you he did not commit it. It tells you more. Shall I go on? By all means. Then I will tell you why you have been so vehement against Mr. Inglethorpe. It is because you have been trying to believe what you wish to believe. It is because you are trying to drown and stifle your instinct, which tells you another name. No, 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 don't say it. Oh, don't say it. It isn't true. It can't be true. I don't know what put such a wild, such a dreadful idea into my head. I am right, am I not? Yes. Yes, you must be a wizard to have guessed. But it can't be so. It's too monstrous, too impossible. It must be Alfred Inglethorpe. Don't ask me about it, because I shan't tell you. I won't admit it, even to myself. I must be mad to think of such a thing. I will ask you nothing. It is enough for me that it is as I thought. And I... I too have an instinct. We are working together towards a common end. Don't ask me to help you, because I won't. I wouldn't lift a finger to... to you to... will help me in spite of yourself. I ask you nothing, but you will be my ally. You will not be able to help yourself. You will do the only thing that I want of you. And that is? You will watch. Yes. I can't help doing that. I am always watching. Always hoping I shall be proved wrong. If we are wrong, well and good. No one will be more pleased than I shall. But if we are right, if we are right, Miss Howard, on whose side are you then? I don't know. I don't know. Come now. I could be hushed up. There must be no hushing up. But Emily herself. Miss Howard, this is unworthy of you. <gasps> oh, yes. Yes. <sighs> that was not Evelyn Howard who spoke. <clears throat> this is Evelyn Howard. And she is on the side of justice. Let the cost be what it may. There goes a very valuable ally. That woman Hastings has got brains as well as a heart. Instinct is a marvellous thing. It can neither be explained nor ignored. You and Miss Howard seem to know what you are talking about. Perhaps you don't realize that I am still in the dark. I am sorry, my friend. Two is enough for a secret. Affronted by Poirot's determination to keep secrets from me, I strolled around the garden, trying to clear my head. 
It was then that I happened upon Lawrence Cavendish. I've been looking for you. Have you? Yes. The truth is, I've got a message for you from Poirot. Yes? He told me to wait until I was alone with you. Isn't this all a little cloak and dagger, Hastings? Well, what is it? This is the message. Find the extra coffee cup and you can rest in peace. What on earth does he mean? Hastings, don't you know? Not in the least. Do you? What extra coffee cup? I don't know. Well, you'd better ask Dorcas, one of the maids, if he wants to know about coffee cups. It's their business, not mine. I don't know anything about coffee cups. Except that we've got some that are never used, which are a perfect dream. Old Worcester, you're not a connoisseur, are you, Hastings? No, I'm afraid not. Hmm. You miss a lot. A really perfect bit of old china. It's a pure delight to handle it, or even to look at it. Well, what am I to tell Poirot? Tell him I don't know what he's talking about. It's double Dutch to me. All right. I say, what was the end of that message? Say it over again, will you? Find the extra coffee cup, and you can rest in peace. Are you sure you don't know what it means? No, I don't. I... I wish that I did. Ah, there's the gong for lunch. I'm famished. See you in there, Hastings. Assuredly you will. As hungry as I realized I was, I thought I heard the sound of voices from the east side of the house. I opted to take the scenic route to the dining room. I tell you, Mary, I won't have it. Have you any right to criticize my actions? It will be the talk of the village. My mother was only buried on Saturday, and here you are gadding about with the fellow. Oh, if it is only village gossip that you mind. But it isn't. I've had enough of the fellow hanging about. He's an outsider. Sometimes an outside view can do us all good. It can stop one from feeling like they're suffocating. I didn't realize that my company was quite so stifling to you, Mary. I take it this Bowerstein fellow is as valuable to you as the air you breathe. Those are your words, John, not mine. Am I to understand that you will continue to see Bowerstein against my express wishes? Yes, if I choose. You defy me? No, but I deny your right to criticize my actions. Have you no friends of whom I should disapprove? Uh, what do you mean? You do see, don't you, that you have no right to dictate to me as to the choice of my friends? No right? Have I no right, Mary? Mary! None! Mary? Are you in love with this fellow, Bowerstein? Perhaps. Oh, hello, Mr. Hastings. Heading to lunch? Um, yes, I was taking a walk to... Uh... Oh, see you there, then. <clears throat> I hope you didn't hear the argument. I, I just walked up, old chap. Didn't hear a word. You know, Hastings, I'm afraid this is all starting to get to me. The Scotland Yard men in and out all day like 
back in the boxes, the screaming headlines. It's all got to be too bloody much. Have you ever thought Hastings? It's a nightmare to me. Who did it? I can't help feeling sometimes it must have been an accident, because... Because who could have done it? Now Inglethorpe's out of the way, there's no one else. No one, I mean, except one of us. No, John, it isn't one of us. How could it be? I know, but still, who, who else is there? Well, can't you guess? No. Dr. Bowerstein. Impossible. Poirot thinks it's possible. Likely, even. Poirot? Does he? How do you know? I remember how old Bowerstein showed up here on Tuesday. He got very excited. He said twice, this alters everything. And I've been thinking. You know, Inglethorpe said he had put down his coffee in the hall. Well, it was just then that Bowerstein arrived. Isn't it possible that as Inglethorpe brought him through the hall, the doctor dropped something into the coffee in passing? Mm. It would have been very risky. Yes, but it was possible. And then, how could he know it was her coffee? No, old fellow, I don't think that will wash. Mm. Oh, you're quite right. That wasn't how it was done, but... Poirot had the cocoa analysed. But look here, Baustein had had it analysed already. Yes, yes, that's the point. I didn't see it either until now. Don't you understand? Bowerstein had it analyzed. That's just it. If Bowerstein's the murderer, nothing could be simpler than for him to substitute some ordinary cocoa for his sample and send that to be tested. And of course, they would find no strychnine. But no one would dream of suspecting Bowerstein or think of taking another sample except Poirot. Yes, but what about the bitter taste that cocoa won't disguise? Well, we've only his word for that. And there are other possibilities. He's admittedly one of the world's greatest toxicologists. Perhaps he's found some way of making strychnine tasteless. Or it may not have been strychnine at all, but some other obscure drug no one has ever heard of, which produces much the same symptoms. Hmm. Yes, that might be. But look here, how could he have got at the cocoa? That wasn't downstairs. Unless someone was helping him, like an accomplice. But who could do... Uh, th there's another thing, something which makes me doubt if what you say can be true. What's that? Why, the fact that Bowerstein demanded a post-mortem. He needn't have done so if he knew how it happened. By this point, John and I had reached the dining room so any further thoughts of Coco or Bowerstein were out on hold. I saw that Cynthia was there and looking in better spirits. I sat next to her and across from Poirot and Mary, who were in deep discussion. Pardon me, madame, for recalling unpleasant memories, but I have a little idea. Of me? Certainly. You are too amiable, madame. What I want to ask is this. The door leading into Mrs. Inglethorpe's room from that of Mademoiselle Cynthia, it was bolted, you say? Uh, certainly it was bolted. I said so at the inquest. 
bolted. Yes. I mean, you are sure it was bolted and not merely locked? Oh, I see what you mean. No, I don't know. I, I said bolted, meaning that it was fastened and I could not open it. But I believe all the doors were found bolted on the inside. Still, as far as you are concerned, the door might equally well have been locked. Oh, yes. You yourself did not happen to notice, madame, when you entered Mrs. Inglethorpe's room, whether that door was bolted or not. I... I believe it was. But you did not see it? No, I... I never looked. But I did. I happened to notice that it was bolted. Ah, then that settles it. Mademoiselle Cynthia, I would love to come and visit you with you at your dispensary. Oh, how lovely. I would be delighted to show you. Ah, magnifique. Uh, uh, Mademoiselle, if you will permit me to point out, your brooches, it is a little... askew? Oh my, well, so it is. I hadn't noticed. There we go. Dead centre on the old scarf now. <laughs> ah, a feast for the eyes. I do so enjoy order. Uh, merci, mademoiselle, for humouring me. He is such a lovely old chap. I would like to talk to you, Mr Hastings. After luncheon, if I may? Uh, of course. We can go for a stroll. After lunch, I excused myself, and Cynthia and I wandered in the garden. My curiosity was piqued. Mr. Hastings, you're always so kind, and you know such a lot. I, I wanted to ask your advice. What shall I do? Do? Yes. You see, Aunt Emily always told me I should be provided for. I suppose she forgot, or didn't think she was likely to die. Anyway, I'm not provided for and I don't know what to do do you think I ought to go away from here at once they don't want to part with you Mrs Cavendish does she hates me hates you yes I don't know why but she can't bear me and he can't either there I know you're wrong on the contrary John is very fond of you oh yes John I meant Lawrence. Not, of course, I care whether Lawrence hates me or not. Still, it's rather horrid when no one loves you, isn't it? But they do, Cynthia, dear. I'm sure you are mistaken. Look, there is John and yes, his Yes, John likes me, I think. And, of course, Evie, for all her gruff, wouldn't be unkind to a fly. But Lawrence never speaks to me if he can help it. And Mary can hardly bring herself to be civil to me. She wants Evie to stay on, is begging her to. But she doesn't want me. And... And I... I don't know what to do. I don't know what possessed me. Her beauty, perhaps, as she sat there with the sunlight glinting down on her head. Perhaps the sense of relief at encountering someone who so obviously could have no connection with the tragedy. Perhaps honest pity for her youth and loneliness. Anyway, 
I leant forward, and taking her little hand, I said awkwardly, Marry me, Cynthia. <laughs> what? <laughs> Don't be silly. <laughs> I'm not being silly. I am asking you to do me the honor of becoming my wife. <laughs> oh, oh, you are such a funny dear. <laughs> I adore you. <laughs> I failed to see anything funny in the situation. <clears throat> Bless you. It's perfectly sweet of you, and you're an angel for suggesting it, but you know you don't want to. Yes, I do. I've got... <laughs> well, never mind what you've got. You don't really want to. <laughs> and I don't either. <laughs> well... Of course, that settles it, but I don't see anything to laugh at. There's nothing funny about a proposal. No, no indeed, no. And I'm sure another girl might accept you next time, but... <laughs> it was quite the nicest proposal I've ever heard. And you cheered me up very much. <laughs> As I tried to gather what was left of my dignity, John Cavendish came hurtling across the lawn. By Jove, Hastings, you were right. You were absolutely right. They've arrested him. Dr. Bowerstein. I felt a click of satisfaction in my mind. It had been an outsider all along. But somehow, I couldn't silence a gnawing sense of doubt. Thank you for listening to Murder in Your Ear. We appreciate you. To receive access to specialized content and to continue to support our quality programming, we invite you to visit our brand new Patreon site at www.patreon.com forward slash murder in your ear. That's www.patreon.com forward slash murder in your ear. And as always, Find us on Facebook and Instagram at NRM Performance and Twitter at Murder Ear. <laughs>